in generosity. It's a great surprise to the pastoral team. You know, we get a little nervous when people just walk up here unannounced. <laughs> so we didn't know what was going to be said, but we're grateful to God for each and every one. Praise God for you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, O Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you, O Lord, for not treating our sins as they deserve. So we pray, O Lord, now that you would help us. Give us ears to hear the truth of your word. Give us a heart that's inflamed for the glory of God. Give us a mind that's focused on your word. And help your servant who's tired and weak. Bless us now, we pray. In Christ, amen. What is Christmas all about? That's the question before us this morning. There are many different answers to this question. One of my military colleagues recently pulled me aside and said to me, Chaps, why do you believe in the Bible? And I said to him, and my answer shocked him, I said to him, I said, the Bible, if you read it correctly, is the greatest love story ever penned. If you read the Bible correctly, it is the greatest story, love story. It is not a Hollywood version. It's not a romance novel version. It's not a worldly version. Love in the Bible is more than a feeling. Love in the Bible is an action. To be exact, it's a sacrificial action on behalf of others. And that's the type of love that's in the Bible that comes from God. God, motivated by love, sent forth his one and only son. He didn't have multiple sons and chose the best. He chose one out of one. He sent this son, the Lord Jesus, to earth. He left the glories of heaven to breathe the dust of this sin-cursed world. And he lived for us a life that we could never live on our best religious day. And he died the most horrible, brutal death in human history. Not for his own sins, because he has none, as the Bible says. He is perfect, but he died for the sins of his people. He died for the sins of his people. That is the action of love. That is sacrificial love. That is biblical love. It's amazing to think that the second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, left the glories of heaven, his rightful realm, and he took upon himself in his humiliation, he took on flesh, he took on human nature to redeem those who were under the curse of the law, those who were facing judgment, those who would die in their sins. Yes, Jesus, the Christ, has a human nature. His human nature started and began 2,000 plus years ago. But Jesus is not created. He's eternal. He's co-eternal with the Father. Jesus has taken on flesh. And that's what we're talking about this morning. is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Incarnation, we're that comes from the word incarne or in meat. We don't say that as Westerners or as Americans because that sounds weird. But we say in flesh. God has taken on flesh upon himself 
in the person of Jesus Christ. So the question, again, before us is this. Does the incarnation of Jesus Christ matter? Does that doctrine matter in our world today? Here's another question for us this morning. Is it possible to live the Christian life and surrender the doctrine of the incarnation? Is it possible to be a Christian without the incarnation? There was a book titled The Myth of God Incarnate. This book was written in 1977, many, many years ago. And that book still has influence in the world that we live in today in 2022, now going into 2023. The author, Maurice Wiles, challenges the incarnation of Christ. And Wiles rejects that God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. In his perspective, the incarnation of Christ is simply a myth, a fairy tale. It's fictional. It did not happen. His foundational assumptions for his argument is this, that the Bible does not have absolute authority. He doesn't have a problem that the Bible has authority. He has a problem that the Bible is absolute authority. And that's what he's challenging, that it does not have absolute authority for us today. His other presupposition is this, that Christianity is like all of human life and all of human feelings, that throughout time, our bodies change and our minds change, and therefore, things are evolving. And because things evolve over time, that it's okay to give up the doctrine of the Incarnation. Wiles also argues that it's possible, he actually says this in this book, that it's possible to be a Christian and not hold on to the key core doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he say any of this, which I would call rubbish? Why would he say any of this? And it's because of this. He looks at church history and he says this, that the church has given up core key doctrines in the past, like the virgin birth or the inerrancy of Scripture. And because the church has historically given up on these key doctrines, that it's a-okay to give up on the incarnation of Christ. Now, there's a certain point of legitimacy to his argument. The church has done that throughout church history in recent decades. He goes on to quote another person by the name of Francis Young, and he states this, quote, Within the Christian church are many diverse personal responses. That's the key language in a statement. Many diverse personal responses to the story of Jesus Christ are acceptable. In other words, what you think about Jesus Christ today may not be the same thing that you believed three, four, five, ten years ago, and your neighbor may agree or disagree with you, and it doesn't really matter. Why? Because it's based on personal experience, personal response. He goes on to say that Christ, as a man in whom God worked mightily or uniquely, he, he agrees with that. But he goes on to say, but it's not by any means a man who was fully God. So he says there's something special about Jesus, but there, at the same time with that same mouth, he says there's nothing special about Jesus. Maybe there are people in this room today that are well-intentioned, well-meaning, and you take the same position as Maurice Wiles. 
There's something special about Jesus, but then again, there's something not special about Jesus. I want to encourage you to think differently today. I want you to put on your biblical thinking caps today and think biblically about Christmas. And the main point that I want to get across today is in your bulletin. The salvation of God's people is only by the incarnate Christ Jesus. The salvation of God's people is only by the incarnate Christ Jesus. Let me say it negatively. I just said it positively. And let me say it negatively. No incarnation, no salvation. No incarnation, no salvation. Those two are deeply connected. We're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Today's message is entitled, The Gift from God. The Gift from God. And today it's important that we take the historical biblical account of Christmas and connect it to a Christmas profession. Because in the Western world, in America, we could say, I believe in Christmas, but you have no idea what that means. Because people are really good in today's culture not to define terms and disconnect it from an actual profession that the church has held to for centuries. The gospel-centered church, that is. I want to bring your attention to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is talking about the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Mary was engaged to Joseph. The betrothal process in the biblical times was different than our engagement process in the Western world, but two, the two are very similar. Mary conceived a child, a child that does not belong to Joseph, per se, and once Joseph found out that his bride-to-be was pregnant, but it was not his child because the text says before they came together, we're talking about marital intimacy, he decided to divorce her and to divorce her privately. In the biblical time, to be betrothed is more legally bounding, binding and has more weight than what we have in America when somebody's engaged to another person. In America, you can be engaged to another person, and if you don't like this other person because their cologne smells, right, you can just cut it off with no legal ramification. But in the biblical world, you couldn't do that without legal action. And so this angel shows up to comfort Joseph. And he tells Joseph that this pregnancy that Mary has is from the Holy Spirit. 
If you connect Matthew chapter 1 to Luke chapter 1, the name of this angel is the angel Gabriel. But in Matthew 121, this is the key verse. Matthew 121. This son that is to be born is to be named a very specific name. Not a random name, not a nebulous name, not a general name, but a very specific name. His name is to be Jesus. The Greek equivalent of that is Joshua. And Joshua, when you translate that in English, is Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Or you could translate that as Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the personal name of God that he gave to his people in the Old Testament. And so why the name of Jesus? Have you ever thought of that? We celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Christ. Why Jesus? Because in that same verse, that key verse of Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sins. The text does not say that Jesus will save us from our screw-ups and our mistakes and our faux pas and our bad wisdom and our bad decisions. The text is very clear. There's a very specific word in this text. For he will save his people from their what? Sins. We're biblical people, are we not? We open up the word of God, do we not? We should use biblical language. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. In the Bible, names matter. And in this case, in the New Testament, Jesus' name is what? Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. See, Jesus did not come to save you and me from bad decisions. Jesus did not come to save you from a terrible marriage and a bad marriage. Jesus did not come to save you from bad financial decisions. Jesus did not come to save you from a bad government with bad rulers. Now, he may change that whole landscape if he so desires. But Jesus has come, and his mission is to save his people from their sins. We're talking about salvation. That's what we're talking about. And the angel quotes, the angel Gabriel quotes Isaiah 7:14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Have you ever thought about that? When the Bible uses language like this, how does a virgin conceive? How is that possible? The Bible's clear. That the answer to that question does not lie with Mary. The answer to that question lies with God, the Holy Spirit. By the power and might of the Holy Spirit, Mary conceives. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's a miracle, Pastor Rolo. Welcome to biblical Christianity. We are people of the book. We believe that God does miracles. We believe that God changes people from the inside out. We believe that God created the world, ex nihilo, creatio, out of nothing. God can divide the Red Sea. God can paint the sky, the canvas with stars and moons. The cosmos. Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed. Jesus changed your heart and my heart. 
What's so hard to believe about miracles in the Bible? So, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So the meaning of Jesus' name actually, accurately, correctly describes who Jesus is and what he will do. He's the son of God. That's what this text is saying. He's the son of God who is God, eternal, and he will save his people from their sins. And this is promised from ages past. In Genesis 3.15 is the first presentation of the gospel. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent was going to wound the seed of the woman. If you fast forward, the seed of the woman is defined as Jesus the Christ. That the serpent was going to wound by wounding the heel, so to speak, Jesus. And that's pictured when you fast forward on the cross when Jesus died. But the Lord gives a prophecy and a promise that this seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head. In other words, he will crush the head of the serpent and all his evil works when the risen Savior appears. We praise God for the resurrection. So this was promised from long ago in 2 Kings chapter 18. It talks about a king. This king is Hezekiah. Most of the kings that you read in the Bible are terrible kings. They're terrible rulers. Eight out of ten of them, nine out of ten of them. But in this particular case, in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah is a good king. He tears down the Asherah poles. He tears down the Baal altars of worship. He reforms and he turns the people's hearts and directions and minds to the true and living God, to Yahweh. But this king died. And when we think about a good king that's finally there to lead God's people, but he dies, should automatically put in our mind that who is the real king? Who is the king that will lead us and be with us forever? That's automatically pointing to Jesus. And it says this in 2 Kings 18, verse 5. He, talking about Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He was a good king, but he died. As God's people in that time frame, in that context, should be saying, where is our king? The king who's come to redeem us and guide us and lead us to the Lord. Psalm 2, verse 6, talks about all the kings of the earth. They have evil schemes and evil desires. Their desires to plot against the living God, Yahweh. But yet the Lord says this in verse 6, Psalm 2, As for me, talking about Yahweh, I have set my king. On Zion, my holy hill. So the king that died, Hezekiah, a good king, gives birth to the question of who's the real king, and God answers that question in Psalm 2, verse 6. I have a king for you, God's people. I will set him upon my holy hill, upon Zion. I will establish his reign. 
that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that. And in the little time that I have this morning, I want to answer two important but basic questions. Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully human? You see this in your bulletin. And question number two, was it necessary for Jesus to be fully God? Those are two important questions. Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully human? The answer is yes. The answer unequivocally is yes. Which leads us to our text for this morning, 1 John chapter 2, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. The writer of 1 John is the same writer and author of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, written before A.D. 110. And during this time frame, there was a false teaching. Let me take a step back. Let me use a stronger word. There was heresy circulating about. And this heresy was called docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo. Dokeo simply means to seem or to appear. To seem or to appear. And what they were saying, these docetists were saying, yes, we acknowledge that Jesus came, but he appeared to be human. He seemed to be human, but he wasn't really human. That's their position. Why would they say this? Because in their thought process, their position, they believe that everything in the material world, everything that we can see with our eyes, everything we could touch with our hands, are evil. It's inherently evil. So if Jesus is the Son of God, and he took on a human nature, human flesh, then that makes the Son of God evil. That's how they put two and two together. So for them, one and one is eleven, not two. So they say he doesn't have a human nature. So they believed that everything was evil in the material world. That's why we can never give up as a gospel-centered church the virgin birth of Christ. See, we understand basic biology, correct? We all have passed high school biology, or we should have. That there is one egg and one sperm, when they come together, conceives. The egg is fertilized. And the biblical position is life starts at conception. Amen? Amen? But Jesus was not conceived in the womb by traditional means. The Bible is very clear in Matthew chapter 1, before Joseph and Mary were together. That's language of marital intimacy. So how does a virgin conceive? By the power and might of the Holy Spirit. He's taken on flesh. But the difference between his flesh and our flesh is our flesh is tainted with sin. His flesh is perfect and holy. That's why the doctrine of the virgin birth can never be messed with, can never be tampered, and can never be tainted. To mess with the virgin birth is to mess with the incarnation. To mess with the incarnation is to mess with the gospel itself, and we lose the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So the Apostle John takes this very, very seriously. He challenges 
that falsehood. He challenges that heresy. The denial of truth should be taken seriously by all Christians. And so John implies this in this text of 1 John chapter 4. That there is a spiritual world. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that operates in this real world is not the only Spirit that operates in this world. In other words, there is a spiritual realm. And in this spiritual realm operates the Holy Spirit of God and evil spirits. That's what's implied. There's a spiritual world. And that spiritual world in the Western world We have been programmed to think that the spiritual world is over there and not over here. But in the biblical world, the spiritual world always intersects with the physical world. And so John gives a negative command to Christians. He says, hey, listen, there's a spiritual world. And here's the negative command to Christians. Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Not every spirit comes from the Lord. What is he saying? Do not trust, do not rely on every supernatural, non-material being. But then John gives a positive command to Christians. He says, but test the spirits. That's the positive command. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, genuinely examine the validity of this teaching, this statement from this person, of the spirits. So what's the idea? That there are evil spirits who are lying spirits. I think that makes sense for us, right? Evil spirits, lying spirits, they go together. And that these evil lying spirits motivate false teachers, false apostles to propagate their heresy in a real world. That's the idea. That's what's being implied right there. The opposite of that is this. That the Holy Spirit comes from God. And the Holy Spirit comes from God, operates in a real world that we see and touch. And the Holy Spirit does not contradict God. The Holy Spirit doesn't take glory from Christ. The Holy Spirit actually points sinners to Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God come together. There is no contradiction. They work in symphony together. They don't work apart from each other. The Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth motivates God's men to teach and preach in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So what is the litmus test? How do we determine what is God's truth from the Holy Spirit and what is an evil lying spirit? that promotes heresy. How do you determine that? Well, praise God for his word. Amen? Verse 2 in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, John gives another positive command, and it's this. By this, you know the Spirit of God. In other words, you all know 
the truth, and the Holy Spirit. How? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Flesh. Has come in the flesh is from God. Is from God. And the key word in verse 2 is the word confess. In the original language, this is a public, emphatic declaration that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus has come in the flesh. It's a public, emphatic declaration to the world. This is not secret service Christianity. This is saying, this is Jesus, the promised Old Testament Messiah, the New Testament Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, who is God for the salvation of his people. It's a public, emphatic declaration in times of pressure, in times of persecution, in times of accusation. This is a bold statement. That's what it means to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. For us as Christians who live in 2022, in a place called Las Vegas, Nevada, in the Western world, in America, this is a glorious truth. This is a wonderful fact that comes from the Bible. This is a truth that should give us hope. And we praise God for the word of God. Let me, let me explain it like this. If you believe that the Adam that God created in Genesis 1 and 2 is fictional, and you believe that the second Adam, Jesus, in the New Testament is real, then you have a skewed version of what the gospel really is. Because in that scenario, there's no hope. Because a fake Adam with fake sin doesn't exist. But a real Jesus, the second Adam, can save a fake Adam who committed fake sin? Let me say it like this. Only those who understand that the first Adam was real with real sin that plunged all of humanity into this cursed world that we live in, there is hope now, real hope, according to Romans chapter 5, in the second and greater and better Adam, Jesus Christ. In other words, when we read the Bible, we don't read it like a fairy tale. We read it as fact. We read it as reality. Let me say it like this. Jesus has come in the flesh, and we know that by the aid of his Spirit, and that should give us great hope. That should give us great, great hope. That we have a salvation that's not fictional. If you have a fake Adam and a fake Jesus, you have a fake salvation. But if you have a real Adam who sinned and a real second Adam, Jesus, who saved us from the first Adam's sin, then there's a real salvation for us. That's the point. And this is what the church has historically professed and declared. This is what Orthodox, gospel-centered churches hold on to. This is what we believe. 
This is not something new, but this is something old that we hold on to. And the apostle John provides instruction on how to determine false prophets. So he says, this is how you know that this is from God. Those who profess that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But this is also how you figure out those who have evil intentions with evil spirits. And it's this, every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. It's not from God. Now, you think about this. We live in Las Vegas. We will run into many, many people over the next couple of weeks. And everybody is celebrating Christmas to some degree or another. And sometimes we'll talk about religious things, sometimes we won't. But when we do and we talk about Jesus, we automatically think, oh, he used the word Jesus, he must be like me or I must be like him. But when you ask people, define Jesus, now you see something different. So this applies. So my heart breaks for those who don't serve the real Jesus. And all of our hearts should break for those who don't serve the real Jesus. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Is Jesus God? That's the dividing, that's the dividing line between us and what is historical and orthodox and biblical. Is Jesus God or not? He is. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. And for John, this is so serious that he says that those who deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he doesn't say they're the Antichrist, but he says they have the spirit of the Antichrist. This is serious for John. This is serious about what Christmas really is. And so the hope that we have, the salvation that we have, is tied directly to the incarnation of Christ. Again, no incarnation, no salvation. And why does this matter? Again, I alluded to earlier, it has everything to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with the gospel. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible's clear. There is one God. There may be a thousand dead, false gods, but there is only one true living God. And there is only one mediator who brings reconciliation. Reconciliation is you have two parties, party A and party B. They're at war with each other. There's a gap that's in between them. They can't get along. And biblically speaking, because of sin, man is at war with God. And God is at war with man because of sin. But yet, this one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, brings two parties together through his work. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. Mankind has sinned against God. The Bible is very clear that your sin has made a separation between you and your God. That's what sin does. You could label sin a million different ways, but sin is ultimately first and foremost against God. 
And secondarily, sin destroys every relationship it touches. So mankind is at war with God, their creator. And yet the thrice holy God will judge. He does judge. He has the right to judge. He has the right to judge. But yet in God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace, he gives the promised one of the Old Testament. He gives Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. He gives them, he gives Jesus to those who repent and trust in him. Here's the beauty of the gospel. If you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. Praise God. If to be forgiven by God requires money, the question must be, how much money should I give? And nobody has the answer to that. If the question is to be forgiven by God, I must do good works and do good deeds. Well, how many good works and good deeds do you have to do to be forgiven by the thrice holy God? And no one has an answer for that. So what most people do is they go through their life doing this, crossing their fingers and hoping, Lord, I hope I said enough, I did enough, please forgive me, amen, let me go into heaven. So they treat God like a cosmic genie. Give me, give me, give me. That's not how you treat the thrice holy God. But yet God in his kindness, he reconciles sinners. He reconciled you and me to himself through Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's a promise that we could take all the way to the bank. Jesus took upon himself flesh, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, as the scriptures say. And Jesus is the only one qualified to earn and merit our salvation. And we receive this great salvation that comes from the Lord, by the way. We receive it by faith in the Son. Not by works. Not by good deeds. By faith alone in Christ. Can you imagine? For those of you who know Christ, can you imagine that every single sin that you've committed is forgiven by God because of Christ? By faith in the Savior. See, we don't have a theoretical Savior that might save you. We have a real Savior that saves. We don't have a theoretical Redeemer. We have a real Redeemer that redeems. Jesus is that gift from God. He's the gift that you need. He's the gift that I need. And we praise God for that. So we need to ask the question, are you a Christian? We need to ask another question. How do you know you're a Christian? We need to ask another question. What is the basis for your statement and your response? Is it personal? Is it ritualistic? Is it traditional? Or is it biblical? If you're not a Christian, repent. Don't say, well, I'll wait till next year when I'm good and ready. You may never be good and ready. What happens if the Lord requires your life tonight? What do you say then? Repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord. See, Christmas 
is all about God's glory by sending his son. God the Father chose his people. He chose you. God the Son, Jesus Christ, lived the life you should have lived, we should have lived. He died a horrible, brutal death. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, as the scriptures say. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, takes the work of Christ and applies it to our dead, cold hearts. He convicts us of sin. He points us to Christ. The Trinity works together to accomplish our salvation. The incarnation matters. And all of God's people say, praise the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. So, let me ask the second question, and I'll go through this quickly. And I've left some scripture references for you. Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully God? The answer again is yes. Was Jesus... Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully human? The answer is yes. Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully God? The answer is yes. Again, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from above. Salvation is from God. Salvation is from heaven. Salvation doesn't start in our hearts. Salvation starts with the heart of God given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The totality of scriptures, if you read the Bible correctly, and you read it through and through, even if you read one gospel in the New Testament, it would clearly teach that no human being, no creature could ever save us from the wrath of God to come. But Jesus does. Jesus is our wrath bearer. He's the one that fills the gap and reconciles two parties together by his own life and his own death. No human being could ever do that. Only God himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So again, Jesus is the mediator that we need. He is the savior that we need. Jonah 2.9 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're saved, if you're a Christian today, it's because God was gracious to you. He opened up your spiritual eyeballs he took out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He gave you new eardrums. He gave you Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not partial. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 for in him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see Jesus, you see God. You see Jesus, you see God. Matthew one twenty three. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's amazing that when we read the Bible, especially in Genesis, when Adam sinned against the Lord and plunged the entire humanity into a sin-cursed sin world, God had every right to judge on the spot and end the human race at that point. He has every right to do so, but he didn't. God is gracious. God is kind. God gave himself to us through the person of Christ. Christ. 
Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Scholars like to use fancy words. Fully God, fully man put together. One person, two natures. That's known as the hypostatic union. One person, two natures. And why is this important? God saved us from himself, by his son, for his glory, and for your benefit. That's the kindness of God. No other person is qualified to do that. No other person can be fully God and fully man. Only Jesus. And we need Jesus. And we have Jesus. Think about this. If you're to touch your arm right now, are you a real person? Yes. Do you commit sin? Yes. So we're not talking about a fake person with fake sin. We have a real person with real sin. Therefore, you need a real Jesus, a real Savior that has saved his people from their sins. So we need Jesus to be fully human for us, to be our official representative to God for us, an obedient representative. He's the one who is our sacrifice. He's our substitute. He's our only qualified substitute. Who else do we have besides Jesus who can be our qualified substitute? No one else can. He's the mediator that reconciles mankind back to God. But we also need someone who's infinite God, fully man, fully human, and fully God. Who else can take the full brunt and penalty and punishment for our sins if he was simply a mere man? If he was simply a mere man, he would be destroyed on the spot. But yet he's the God-man, fully God and fully man. He is infinite. We are finite. And he's the one who is qualified to earn our salvation. So when we think about Christmas, dear brothers and sisters, we need to think about not gifts that we simply give to our neighbors and our coworkers and our children and our grandchildren. We need to think about the greatest gift that ever came from God, Jesus Christ himself. That's how we think as Bible-believing Christians. You know, as we celebrate this Christmas time, we need to evaluate and analyze everything we say and everything we do by the word of God. We need to analyze our activities, our traditions, everything we say and everything we do. As Bible-believing Christians, are we celebrating the season of Christ? Or are we celebrating Christ? In what we are doing and saying, is it honoring to God? Is it pleasing to God? Is it honoring to the King that God has given to us for your salvation? We need to answer these difficult but legitimate questions. Because we could actually celebrate Christmas and take Christ out of Christmas. The songs we normally sing during this Christmas time are embedded deeply in the lyrics, the incarnation of Christ, the gospel message. We're about to sing with Pastor Ed's help, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I want to focus our minds and hearts on these lyrics. 
We're about to sing glory to the newborn king. A baby can't save, but a king does. But yet he was born a babe, and he is the king. We're about to sing God and sinners reconciled. Praise the Lord. God and sinners reconciled. We're about to sing born that no born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them what? Second birth. We're talking about regeneration. That should help us think of John chapter 3. Isn't it wonderful that we sing songs as a church family that are not necessarily traditional, but they're biblical and theological? And it drives our heart and our affections to the glory of Christ. We need to deeply think about what God has done for us, for you and me, this Christmas season, because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sermon in a Sentence. Go tell others about the gift of salvation that comes from God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this Christmas time and Christmas season. But Lord, if we were to be honest, we admit that we many times celebrate Christmas without Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to that end to think deeply about the great salvation that we have from you that's come from above through the Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you, Lord, for reconciling us back to God, our Creator. Thank you for the gifts of repentance and faith. And we thank you, O God, that you are merciful, gracious, kind, faithful, and loving and that we are forgiven of all our sins because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you for the aid of the Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.